please stand for the reading of the word. Today's scripture is Luke 3, 1 through 18, the proclamation of John the Baptist. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region, region of Eutrea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall, shall see the salvation of God. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages." As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. If you were listening very closely there, um, you heard a phrase. I'll point out which one it is to you in just a minute. But uh, I don't know about you, but I've, I've heard several rather intense, shall we say, uh, discussions over these past several years about, you know, what is the most appropriate season's greeting? What should it be for this time of year? It seems people have a great deal of passion to hash out these, uh, in my opinion, rather small details. But, you know, happy holidays, Merry Christmas. But John the Baptist 
really gave us something better. I th can you imagine how many greeting cards Hallmark would have sold if they'd only latched on to brood of vipers? I mean, nothing quite sends the warmth and the feels we're looking for this time of year, like calling, you know, your friends or foes a nest of venomous snakes. Am I right? I don't know about your house, but at my house, sometimes we use, well, a little stronger language. We're a little more pointed with one another that we know and love the most because, well, we have years of familiarity built up at point blank range with one another, don't we? That's kind of how families are. And we know each other incredibly well. So I actually find it quite helpful to frame John's brood of vipers comment this way. The words used by John, a devout person of faith, were spoken to other people of faith. The crowds coming were people of the same faith. He couldn't have gathered a crowd from folks who were not with language like that after all, could he? And so John was hoping to jolt them into a better reality where their beliefs align better with their behaviors and beliefs and behaviors align better with the gospel. Now, it's important to note that this rather harsh and urgent message was given to those on the inside of the family of faith, not to those on the outside. <laughs> Keep that in mind. John had the eyes to see that there was a terrible crisis at hand. The most urgent an important thing, according to John the Baptist, if we're really listening for the message that people of faith in his day could have done, was to align their beliefs and their behaviors. Their lives, after all, were intended to be a tapestry that God used to display God's incredible, unconditional love to all of the world. But their inconsistencies left so many holes in that tapestry, it was time to either repair it, fix it, or toss it aside in favor of something more appropriate to reflect God's love to the world. Did you hear the words? Every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh, all people shall see the salvation of God. Those were the words of Isaiah. And John used them again in his fiery sermon right here. You see, when the ground is level, people have access and alignment to share equally in God's dream for the world, a dream where everyone has enough, enough dignity, enough to eat, enough respect, enough, enough. And so moving and, and rearranging the valleys and the mountains is heavy lifting, and it takes a team of willing workers. It takes a team who see the whole picture. John was trying to paint it in his brash, direct way as he could. It never really wins prophets too many friends. John was making the demand that their beliefs, the claim that their beliefs, what they think in their heads, matter far less than how they were treating one another with their hands and their hearts. 
John was making demands on behalf of a demanding gospel that they, remember, the faithful, not the world, would be willing to repent. He called on them to do a 180-degree turn. That's what repent literally means, and to go in another direction. And apparently John's appeal was so compelling that even unlikely folks who weren't in the family of faith were overhearing the family conversation. One might call it a family squabble. And even they were responding. Tax collectors, did you catch that? And soldiers of the Roman Empire, they were overhearing this and they were repenting as well. But it started in the house of God. It started in the family of faith. And, and the gospel John was preaching was demanding. He was demanding more than just private prayers and devotions and beliefs and thoughts. To the soldier and the tax collector, for example, the gospel he preached demanded economic justice. He didn't tell him, hey, go home and pray about it. John said, no more extorting, no more overcharging. Their walk must match their talk if they were truly going to be repentant. And so John preached a gospel that demanded that those hearing made changes, or at least, well, were willing to ask that pesky question. Did you catch it when we read it? John preached a gospel that demanded that those hearing the gospel ask an extremely difficult question, not of someone else, but of themselves. What must we do. The gospel, when properly received, always demands the hardest questions of ourselves, by the way, and extends the most possible grace to everyone else. Otherwise, we're doing it wrong. And so, what was the answer that, to that soul-searching question, what must we do? John said, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Repentance. I wonder how long it's been since we looked at ourselves in the mirror because of the demands of the gospel and said, self, where are my fruits of repentance? What does that look like in my life today? Not in theory, but in practice. What shall I do? I believe were John among us today, he would agree that we're in a bit of a crisis as well in the American church in our own day. You see, for several decades, the most prominent religious voices of Christianity have said from pulpits not too different from this one and from Sunday school classrooms and from everywhere, hey, don't worry, be happy. Hey, being a Christian, it's easy. Just believe. And then we proceeded to lead the willing ones and a sort of sinner, sometimes the unwilling ones too, and a sort of sinner's prayer, you know, confessing sins, that's, that's biblical, sure. Stating a belief or two about God or Jesus before asking to be forgiven and, of course, accepted into heaven one day when we die. But one of the challenges for us 2,000 years removed from this biblical account we're reading today is that there are actually about five to seven different words for the word believe. In the Greek language, the original language, 
of the New Testament, but we really only have believe or faith that kind of fit the bill. A fuller understanding of the biblical word belief is one that implores action and trust. Action and trust. Furthermore, changing the attitudes of our hearts, John knew was only half the picture. John knew there was at least 50% more work left. As we say at my house, we're carnivores. There's more chicken left on that wang. John knew there was more to do, namely that we embody the actions that we say we believe. By the way, just in case anyone's counting, the phrase sinner's prayer doesn't appear once in the whole Bible, but the word for repent or repentance appears 106 times, which means to change, to turn around, to do an about face, in other words, to do some heavy lifting as a result of what you say you profess. So today there are mountains that need leveling and there are valleys that need lifting and we don't have to look very far. There are many structures that need updating. Most congregations, for example, have shied away from difficult conversations about human dignity or equality or compassion when it gets dicey. Most have refused to be involved in the work of transforming society and have instead turned inward and remained introspective for the most part in our faith. And if we're not careful in so doing, many distort the ways we understand the very nature of our faith itself at times. We've made it out to be believing the right stuff in our heads about God or Jesus for the purpose of an afterlife later when what God says in the scriptures that God wants for us to do are the right things for the purpose of our neighbor's lives in this life and to trust whatever happens next entirely to God. Just as God has buoyed us up in this life, why would we expect anything to be different later? But we've got work to do when we're here. Churches and leaders have thought for a few decades at least that what we were doing was making sure we would avoid the possibility of offending anyone by, you know, staying away from sensitive topics and sticking purely to the theoretical and the spiritual. And by that we think we mean generally things that don't meddle too much with the rules that our society has agreed to live by. But what we didn't anticipate is that by avoiding the potentially touchy conversations and doing the work of transforming our world into a more loving and just place for all, we would also miss the opportunity to inspire at least three to four generations of members who would have gladly joined us in God's work. The truth is, when we get it right, this gospel is extremely risky and at the same time extremely relevant to the biggest challenges that our world faces today. The gospel was never intended to be safe or secure or passive or focused strictly on the hypothetical. The gospel was never intended to be an invitation to abandon our responsibility to the world in which we live for the sake of some other world later. The gospel makes very real and incredibly demanding claims for those who dare to live it. Real demands not private ones, some are rather public. Immediate demands, 
The question is so pesky. What then shall we do in response to the gospel? Now, I have not forgotten, just in case some of you are wondering, that this week's Advent theme is joy. <laughs> you, but you see, there's the confusion. We've confused happiness and joy. Joy is a tricky and elusive thing. We don't come upon true joy just by reaching out and grabbing it like a, out of a vending machine. We don't get joy by playing it safe. We find joy by making the ground level in and around the community of God and our broader community as well, so that whosoever will may come and access God and the people of God and the bounty of God on level ground. And sometimes that means we have to work on the church. And sometimes that means we have to work on the systems that play in our community. And sometimes that demands that we work on ourselves and our beliefs and aligning what we say we believe with what we actually do and aligning both of those with the gospel. John is trying to tell us by latching on to these words from Isaiah many generations before him that as we lift those valleys and as we level those mountains, we will find true joy and we'll be shocked. We weren't even looking for it. John is trying to tell us that joy is found in the inclusion of others that the world would rather overlook and many people of God, for that matter, would rather overlook look. Biblical joy, the only kind worth having, requires hard work and a lifelong commitment to embodying what we say we believe, not just as individuals, but as a faith community. And in the Christian church, Disciples of Christ, we say we welcome all to God's table just as God has welcomed all of us. And the gospel John preached has a rather demanding follow-up question for those who seek to be faithful. It's pesky. I wish it weren't there for my own benefit, but I'm obligated to say it. Do we embody what we say we believe? In other words, does all really mean all? Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, giving voice to the silenced, speaking truth to power, protecting the most vulnerable among us. These are just some of the ways that we level mountains and, and lift the low spots. And in so doing, we're doing God's work. We're building a home for all. The work is demanding. The work will often lead us to raise valleys that we realize we were the ones that lowered them in the first place. It'll lead us to analyze, hey, where's that mountain been? And realize we're the ones, we have, we have allowed it to stand. Maybe we even put it there somewhere back there in the dark ages and forgot. Building a home for all requires that we regularly give an honest examination of our perspective change our attitudes and actions if need be, and bring them into alignment, not only with one another, but with the gospel. And John was trying to tell us when we're missing joy in our lives, when, when there is no joy to be found, it's because our actions and our behaviors are out of alignment someplace. They're not level. And the best way, John says, to get the joy back, it's not to rush out and do something that will only bring short-term happiness. You know, microwave it and it's good to go. 
but rather to center our lives on building a home for all. The work of inclusion into God's family, making level the path so that people can get to God and God can get to people. There's alignment. There's accessibility for all. And when we're on the joyful path and we know we're squarely, safely inside God's home for all and we're busy building it, there's something amazing that happens. We start to realize that some of those dadgum folks we could have sworn were outsiders, <laughs> they were actually pretty faithful. It was us who needed realignment of our beliefs and our behaviors and maybe we're the ones that need to change our attitude about how we feel about our neighbor. I read a powerful story recently about a Jesuit priest named Father Gregory Boyle. Amazing story. He is the founder of a ministry, and I'm not sure I'm cool enough to pull a ministry called this off. I think Eula probably could, but it's called Homeboy Industries. Doesn't that... I mean, I'm not cool enough, but I think Eula... See, she's got... She's got and it's a gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program based in Los Angeles, California. And Homeboy Industries' primary initiatives are fivefold. Just let me give you a real brief summary. Number one, to reduce the recommitment of crimes by these former gang members, to reduce substance abuse. Number three, to improve social connectedness. Number four, to improve housing safety and stability. And number five, to reunify families. You talk about doing God's work of raising valleys and leveling mountains. And in this article, Father Boyle, he shared how their ministry has truly been a surprise with results that have caught he and many of his most faithful volunteers off guard. He said, and I quote, me wanting a gang member to have a different life would never be the same as that gang member wanting to have one. But I have discovered that you do not go to the margins to rescue anyone. But if we're willing to go to the margins, a truly joyful thing happens. Everyone finds rescue, especially myself and my volunteers. My friends, that's the upside down miracle of joy. Joy escapes us as long as we seek it for our own sake, but when we aren't seeking joy at all, but rather emptying ourselves, doing God's work of inclusion, building a home for all, joy's right there under our noses the whole time. We go to the margins seeking to offer love and inclusion because the gospel demands it, but when we're at the margins, joy shocks us every time because what we realize is we're the ones who needed rescuing just as much as anyone else rescuing what yeah from self-absorption from settling from for a lesser gospel and from a joyless existence joy waits for us at the margins dear ones as we build god's home for all may we embody the faith we say we believe, and may the Holy Spirit help us. Amen.